Hi, this is David Spray, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. My guest today is Ben Lair. Ben is the founder and CEO of First Water, an advisory firm here in Houston that connects teams with data and companies with capital through a concept he calls relational finance. In this episode, we talk about Ben's background, what inspired him to start First Water, and where the name First Water came from in the first place. Ben's company is unique in the M&A world. And if you're an entrepreneur with an established business that is looking to grow either organically or through acquisition, or you have monetization objectives, this episode is for you. Ben has also written a book called Relational Finance, Better Teams, Better Growth, and Better Deals that I highly recommend. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Now, let's get to the show. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. So, let's get started. So, let's start at the beginning. Are you a native Houstonian? Well, that's a technical question. My Were you family, born in a hospital in Houston? How about that? I was not. I was not. I was born in a hospital in Boston, and my family moved to Houston when I was three months old. So in the eyes of some, I'm a Houstonian, and in the eyes of others, I will never be. Yeah. Unfortunately, since I can't be a Houstonian, a uh, native Houstonian, neither can you. So for me, it doesn't matter what day you arrived if you weren't born here. <laughs> Because if I can't get credit, then, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to have to veto your inclusion as well. So, so you got here as quick as you could and grew up in Houston. And then you went off to college at, I guess, the University of Pennsylvania to the Wharton School of Business. Is that correct? That's true. Then you went to Wall Street and thought it was kind of cool, but you sort of saw an opportunity for... Uh, Smaller companies, is that kind of about right? Why don't you fill us in on that? Sure. I think it's fair to say that I started out doing the things I was supposed to do. I okay. was interested in business, so I opened up U.S. News and went to undergraduate business programs and applied to Wharton. And then I went to Wharton, where more than 60% of students study finance and studied finance, and then did what a lot of Wharton finance people do, which is go and become an investment banker in New York City. I worked at Citigroup Global Markets in their in one of their structured fixed income groups. And then I did what lots of investment bankers are supposed to do, which is go join a private equity firm, mm-hmm. which is what I did and went to and joined the private equity team at Fortress Investment Group and joined there in 2006 and had an interesting experience as a young professional in 2008 and 2009, ended up leaving Fortress to join a former Fortress colleague, opportunistic and secondary credit for a small bank and also internal M&A work. Realized that working for a bank didn't necessarily fit my personality and found myself independent in the early 2010s. So it's a nice way of saying it's been more than a decade since I've had a real job. (laughs) Okay. And when you, and the name of that company is called First Water? Uh, my, yes, my company now is called First Water Advisors. And did, when you launched that, were you still in New York or had you already returned to Houston? I was. It is an interesting story in terms of its formation. Uh, when I left 
the bank that I was working at called Capital Source Finance. I was running around with a couple of my former private equity colleagues doing what we call the, the fundless sponsor or independent sponsor gig, which is a nice way of saying we'd go try to find deals and then try to find the capital to finance those transactions. Okay. And while we were looking at a number of opportunities, I started picking up some small business advisory clients and looking what was happening in the world of private equity, where these enormous war chests of capital were being raised and looking at those investors having to target further and further down market into smaller companies because so much of the middle market had kind of been picked over, really highlighted an enormous market gap and opportunity that I thought was worth going after, which was these enormous capital cannons were pointed down into smaller businesses. And these smaller businesses typically didn't have the team or the experience to effectively engage with that type of investor group. Mm -hmm. And that was really where the thesis of what has become First Water Advisors came about, which was to bridge the gap in financial planning and analysis or FP&A and corporate development and corporate finance capabilities and experience to help those companies manage themselves better so that they will be better able to engage with those sort of capital partners to achieve a number of different goals, whether it's growth, acquisition, or eventual exit of their businesses. Okay. And so capital canon, is that a term you coined or did you pick that up somewhere else or do you remember? A capital, I think where I last heard capital canon formally used, I had to do with SoftBank and their vision fund pouring uh, big time venture capital money into later stage unicorns. And I forget which, which CEO or business it was, but these traditional business models were looking at these disruptive forces and these disruptive forces didn't actually really care about making money. So you look at these disruptive startups that are trying to take over industries, Uber yeah. as an example, even Amazon kind of in earlier in its trajectory, they didn't really care about making money. They just cared about taking market. And so if you have legacy business models, especially ones with small business where people are feeding their families out of profits and they're competing against these disruptive forces who don't care about making money because they have this wide swath of capital behind them, they said, hey, we really don't want to be fighting against the capital cannon that is pointing at us from these specific types of investors. Okay. And I guess that'd be different than a capital canyon, right? That's probably uh, something totally different, I would imagine. Correct. Can, or or canon, a capital canon valley. being the one you shoot, yes. yes. Canon being or, the one that gets shot. Gotcha. And what does the name First Water mean? Where did that come from? You know, First Water uh, is a term. It's in the dictionary. And it dates back to the 1700s. And it has to do with the mining of gemstones particularly diamonds, and the ones that were found closest to the native water source were often the ones of the highest quality. And so it hmm. became a, a term that eventually then became used to describe people, where you say, oh, she is a lady of the first water. Oh, really? And so as we thought about kind of what we wanted to be about 
and we thought about how traditional models, particularly in finance, fell short of these things, we thought about things like transparency and clarity and quality. Hmm. I'm looking up the definition now. (laughs) The purest luster used of gems or the highest grade, degree, or quality. First used in 1753. Awesome. Well, I've already learned something today. So, so thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. The trade-off is we get water deals sent our way. <laughs> so we hear about all sorts of reverse osmosis filtration technology that only gotcha. $10 million to reach a commercial prototype. And we tell people that despite our name, but we are not the best fit and they probably need to go find second water. Gotcha. Okay. No, that sounds good. So I have an MBA and I'm a fan of the case study. So I would like you to share a couple stories, example, like client success stories that come to mind that would illustrate in a way that somebody who's listening, who has a similar type of business would say, oh my goodness, I need to call Ben right now. Do a couple representative deals kind of come to mind that you could tell us a bit about, even if you have to keep the names confidential? Sure. I think I can get through two pretty quickly. Two's enough. That'll be fine. The goal that I would have would be to highlight the toolbox of the capabilities and the the different ways in which they are deployed. Okay. Uh, So a good example always to use being here in Houston is anything related to the oil field. Mm -hmm. And when I first moved back to Houston, I met an, an entrepreneur who had started an oil field services business. And this was around 2014. And he had grown it significantly in three to four years. And he was now running a business that was bigger than any business he had ever run. Okay. And he looked around at what his competitors were doing and they were taking private equity money and starting to acquire other businesses. And and he knew that he was only scratching the surface of the potential of his business. So he wasn't interested in selling, but he did say, hey, should I be looking at acquiring some of these other businesses? How do I think about that? How do I execute on it? I've never dealt with outside capital before. I've never dealt with the M&A process before. Okay. And so we said, sure, we can help you with that. We know the process. We know the partners. We can figure out your business and we can take you through that process. So we started working on that. And I don't know if you recall kind of what happened in 2014 to 2015, but it was about $100 a barrel. Mm -hmm. And so his business changed dramatically under his feet. And we were no longer talking about M&A. We were talking about cash flow and liquidity. And so we were able to pivot pretty quickly off of our M&A discussion and really dig into his numbers and data to figure out what his world was going to look like. Okay. Things like institutional grade 13 week cash flow, things like overtime labor optimization. So as a result, he was able to survive that downturn and come out on the other end in a much better position, better processes, more attractive to outside capital with what he had in place. And 
the case study there is when you bring this FP&A and corporate finance toolbox under one umbrella, that when the sands shift beneath you, the relationship doesn't need to end. Okay. And in fact, in this situation, the ability to help him was the difference in, he would likely say that it was the, biz- the difference between his business surviving or not, and has led to other opportunities for us in the half dozen years that have followed. Okay. So I think that's you, one. Okay. And just a quick question. Do you still work with him? Not only do I work with him, but he's a good friend of mine. Okay. Excellent. Okay. So let's get to, that's a great example of showing the uh, flexibility of your model that you can help in a variety of different uh, types of circumstances, correct? Sure. All right. How about other, another example? The other one I would use is kind of finding the square peg in the square hole when you don't know what it is from the get-go. Okay. And there is a business we work with here in Houston mm-hmm. that had reached the point with its ownership that they were looking to sell the business and retire. And within this business, they have a couple different, the owners have on very specific role. They have very specific roles within the business, very different roles, including one who is a customer facing part of the business, the face of the business. In selling it and had approached first water about being their sell side representative, their advisor. Okay. And we'd know, we'd known this business for a couple of years. We had talked to them about getting ready for something like this a couple of years back. Their business had changed significantly to the good in those couple of years and, and they were ready uh, to go out and pursue a process that could yield the type of number that was interesting to them. What became very clear as we got into that process, starting as their so was that there was quite a knot to unravel with regard to the key man risk in the business mm-hmm. and the nature of that transition. Things like ongoing participation, how long those people would need to be in the business, non-competes. Mm-hmm. And what we realized was that if we ran a traditional process and went out to the world, that we would get back a number of proposals with a number of different flavors on what that piece of the transaction would look like. Mm-hmm. And we saw that part of the transaction as potentially more important than valuation. Okay. But it was going to take some time to figure out. And we knew that if we took that out and had a bunch of different flavors, that running all those to ground, in addition to all the other parts around negotiating a transaction, such as valuation and structure, that we would probably have somewhat of an inefficient process because people don't like to spend a month or more negotiating one aspect of a transaction before they're actually even engaged on an exclusive basis. Okay. So this yielded an interesting scenario for us because we really like this business. And we saw this need to figure this part out. So we approached the owners and we said, what if instead of selling your business, we buy your business? specifically to hammer out these issues up front so that we could take something to the market from a debt and equity capital financing perspective that we believe could get done. And they liked us, we liked them, they were on board with this. And so we pursued that and we executed an LOI to acquire the business 
and started talking to capital partners to be our partners in that opportunity. Where we ended up was we met another private equity firm who was putting together a platform in that specific space and was eons ahead of us in their development of that thesis and had brought together other pieces that were very complementary. And so what we decided to do was we allowed it, we allowed them to step into our position. And we are now going to be partners in a larger business with that company. And we're going to step in and run the finance function of the business hmm. with regard to the things that we do from an FP&A perspective. So we thought we were selling something. Then we start, then we thought we were going to buy something. Now we're partners in something and we're going to have an ongoing role in the business. Well, that is really outside the box thinking. I mean, I don't know every type of deal that every advisory firm gets involved in, but that sounds a little more outside the box than the, than the norm. It's really a it's really a simple concept when you boil it down, which is if you focus on the right answer for the people that matter. And you have a model that is flexible enough to fit into that box, as opposed to forcing them into yours, then you can make really good things happen. And one of the things that we were really diligent about in kind of setting up our own business model was to maximize the ability to make the most out of good situations. Because I think if you set up a rigid business model, which by the way, is much easier for scalability, Mm -hmm. you will inevitably miss good opportunities because they don't fit your box. And that's not the way we've chosen to do business. Okay. No, I I like that. That really gives some, some color with those examples. So that being said, even though you have a flexible model and you don't have a rigid box, they have to fit in, you know, like, They have to be a narrow revenue range. They can only be in one of two industries. So I can appreciate that. But that being said, your model, I wouldn't think would be so flexible that you can serve anybody from a $100,000 company to a Fortune 10 company. Is that a safe assumption? I think that's fair. Our companies are all, if I was going to give that target profile, they are all established businesses who have growth, acquisition, and or monetization objectives that either one, represent uncharted waters for the team, and or two, necessitate access to institutional capital as accomplishing that growth acquisition or monetization roadmap. And so for us, that that tends to be almost exclusively businesses between five and about a hundred million dollars of revenue. Yep. And there are sometimes outliers on either side as a result. And I would say that it, while it sounds flexible, there's really three ways that we engage with companies. We engage with on a recurring advisory or business process outsourcing basis with respect to the FP&A function. So that means we are designing, building and maintaining reporting and business intelligence processes, forecasting and planning tools, 13-week cash flow, system and data connectivity. 
where we are serving as that finance function for businesses who don't have people on their org chart with titles like VP finance, Mm -hmm. FP&A director, corporate development officer, business data analyst, which is essentially every one of those companies in that size range that I just mentioned compared to a multi-billion dollar business and organization. And what does FP&A mean? What does that stand for? Sure. So that's financial planning and analysis. Okay. And historically, that has been the analytical and sort of data processing hub of companies. It has changed in recent years with the rise of data science and big data and analytic platforms. So the way we think about it is really reporting and business intelligence and forecasting and planning. Okay. Any sort of those activities are living in that FP&A function. And the professionals that sit in that function are of a very specific breed. And in smaller businesses, a lot of those things are owned by accountants because accounting professionals are all of those. That's what small businesses start with. Yep. But these larger companies who have dedicated teams with those titles I just mentioned are staffed with people who have very segmented skill sets. Yep. It's fundamentally different from their accounting professionals. Okay. Got it. So that's one way you can help them is basically by outsourcing that FP&A function to your team. Okay. So that's the first one. The others are much easier and faster to cover because they are more traditional, which is action initiatives, all of the activities that you would see kind of inside a boutique investment bank, with the exception of third-party business valuation and fairness opinions. And our project consulting business, which is has a lot of overlap with what we do on the FP&A business process outsourcing side, but it's done primarily for larger businesses, specifically private equity-backed companies. Okay. So that, that project consulting business, can you give me a simple example, you know, either real or hypothetical of what that looks like? Sure. A private equity firm buys a company that is dealing with institutional capital for the first time and maybe significant leverage for the first time and immediately upon acquisition has a much different requirement for information flow. They, okay. now, owe their, they now owe their lenders reporting. Their board and investment team wants KPI reporting. There's okay. a lot more pressure there's a lot more pressure on their budgeting process. Now that they are more levered, they care more about things like weekly cash flow forecasting. Yep. Before the deal, they might not just have left a lot of cash sloshing around in the business to not have that stress. Okay. So that piece would be around like designing the process and the system. And then they may or may not engage you to actually manage that on an ongoing basis with service offering one. That's correct. There is overlap between the two. Okay. So I must say that that first option I can imagine is is kind of handy from uh, a financial perspective of your business because most financial advisory folks I know, you know, it's a kind of a feast or famine thing. 
And so I imagine that recurring revenue model probably helps to smooth out some of your company's cash flow. Recurring revenue is a beautiful thing. There's no <laughs> denying there's no denying that part. Uh, as opposed to living projects, the project pipeline to project pipeline or transaction to transaction. The big thing for us is that it's not just about smoothing out our own model. It's that we want those FP&A, what we call managed FP&A partner companies to become our pipeline for capital and transaction initiatives. Yep. Because one of the, one of the things that we spend a lot of time on with the companies that we work with who are either seeking now or going to be seeking access to that sort of capital down the road is the your ability to get the most out of that process starts way before you have your first conversation with an investment banker. Yep. And when it comes to building a track record around processes and information flow, that those sort of investors and capital partners will expect to see in those businesses, that incremental credibility is a significant driver of value in those transaction processes, let alone just being able to run your business better. Yeah. And making more money in the meantime. Yep. No, I got it. One of my favorite podcasts is Built to Sell by John Warlow. Do you know who John is? He wrote the book Built to Sell. And he has guys on every week who've done a transaction, who sold a business, and uh, he will kind of go through the story. You know, what happened? Did the buyer, what kind of nasty, you know, dirty tricks did the buyer try on you? You know, last minute renegs, all kinds of stuff. So I feel like I've kind of vicariously experienced, you know, a couple hundred times what it's like to sell a business. And that's one of the big things they always talk about is that they're the importance of being prepared, kind of having your information that they're going to need ahead of time, you know, having your data room already built. And it sounds like that's what your FP&A process is helping to do is so that rather than when the first LOI shows up, they come in, the you know, their first question around information you can't even provide because you don't, haven't spent much time on that function. Is there some, am I on the right path there? Absolutely. And there's a concept of value and we can talk about value in terms of cash flow multiples and EBITDA multiples and why one business is worth eight times and one business is worth four. But I think one of the things that we always stress is value is not just a quantitative financial Mm -hmm. device. And sometimes getting value out of a transaction means you being able to walk away and not having to work for another five years. Right. And that these processes, that track record to imbue those responsibilities and capabilities into other people beside yourself is fundamental for a business owner to make the value about the business and not the owner. Yep. No, that makes, yeah, I've got it. That makes sense. So what else do you look for in a client besides, you know, kind of five to a hundred million in revenue and you're looking to grow? Do you like pain in the ass clients, difficult, non-responsive, disorganized, rude, or are there other characteristics you look for in a client? 
I feel like there's a lot of ways to take the, to take that question based on how it's <laughs> led. But the number one thing we we look for is, or I guess the two, the top two things are aspirations and coachability, because we know a couple things. It's very hard for companies to value what we bring to the table if they're happy where they are. Sure. So lifestyle coupon clipping type businesses who are happy to click along and have something good going. They don't necessarily want the risk of investing in something to go bigger. Yeah. And so they aren't particularly good clients for us. On the coachability side, we we know that we are coming in as the technical experts in what we do. In some ways, that's a little bit different than what you see in in other areas of the investment sphere where investors come in and tell entrepreneurs how to run businesses. Mm-hmm. And that to me, that's crazy. But when it comes to the finance function and how it can be done, especially with limited resources and the value that it can bring to what they are trying to accomplish. We know that's what we live and breathe every day. And if somebody's not going to invest in that education and understanding kind of how it brings value into their business that might show up on their income statement as an expense, as opposed to a sales item. That can be tricky. And so that's part of, that's part of why we went out and wrote a book about it, why we've created tools and assets for not only our clients, but the larger entrepreneurial and business community to have access to. Ah, you stole my thunder if you'd waited one more sentence. Ah, <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to sound very clever and say, hey, Ben, this sounds really just fascinating. Too bad that you hadn't distilled all your thinking into an easy to digest, portable, non-electronic <laughs> format for folks. Have you ever thought about that? And then what would you have said? I said somebody slapped me over the head a few years ago and, and gave me a similar idea. So what's the name of the book? uh, The book is called Relational Finance. And it's it's called Relational Finance because all of the traditional models, particularly in finance advisory and in the capital investment space, are transactional in nature. Mm -hmm. One deal, one project, one person. And we really needed to figure out a way to make dialogue the thing that permeates through the relationship. And that requires flexibility. That requires different types of capabilities because you're not there to just do one thing if you're doing it right. Mm -hmm. But it was this goal about being able to center yourself on a business and owner's objectives and stay there. And then fit everything else around that, even as they change. And to turn what is something that was transactional engagement by nature, almost uniformly, into a relational model. 
but that's a very eloquent way of framing it up. We really wrote the book because we just got tired of talking about it. Yeah. And it is designed to be that sort of companion. How do you take this set of capabilities and use it to drive better teams, better growth, and better deals? Mm-hmm. So where does somebody uh, pick up your book? Well, the book is available at... No, I'm just kidding. It's available on Amazon. It is available in Kindle formats. It's also available in Audible audiobook formats. It is not narrated by myself. I hired a professional. Ah, that's uh, a bummer. Randy Haynes of the Houston Radio Lore is the narrator of the book. So he, okay, uh, I have been told that he makes you sound like you want to cuddle up with a warm hot chocolate. Ah, well, that sounds. I don't know if that works for finance, but you know, we don't want to put people to sleep. But uh, yeah, yeah, I believe he did a far superior job than I would have done. Okay, no, well, that's that is great. I have also written a book to kind of distill those ideas, and I found it to be a efficient way to convey some things. The other nice thing about having a book it uh, it imparts a certain amount of credibility in the mind of the person who's never written a book, right? I think that is how it was originally positioned for us Mm -hmm. as this kind of authority marketing credibility driver. It's a wonderful business card that doubles as a sharp edge projectile. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. My, my use of it is a little bit different in that I know that business owners have very limited time. And one of the things is we were, building this model was we spent a lot of time, not just us, but businesses as well. And I could meet a business owner and we could spend talking about what they had and what they were trying to do. And then we could spend another two hours talking about the finance function toolbox and how the various tools within that toolbox could help him or her accomplish those goals. And then we would spend another two hours talking about all of the options available in the marketplace for them to go access those tools and why we thought that relational finance was the best one. And so the book kind of gets at all of those different pieces, but we also created an assessment tool about finance readiness called the FIRE score. Goes well with first water. Mm-hmm. And the like goal it. of creating Fire Score was to compress those first two hours. And if somebody takes three to five minutes and we take three to five minutes, we have a starting point for what we're looking at, what the goals are, what the current finance capabilities are, and we can start drawing those lines of connectivity. And now we've taken those first two hours down to five or 10 minutes. Now we can take 10 minutes to talk about it and we can say, okay, we get it. This is what we do. We wrote a book about it. I know you're busy. I'm not asking you to read the whole book, but specifically to what we've talked about, I think you should really check out chapters three, five, six, and eight. Mm -hmm. And so now we've taken that second and part of that third two hours and compressed them down to a few minutes. And so it was really about 
making that education and adoption part of the communication a lot easier for everybody. Got it. And I've, and by the way, I think you've done a great job. I've read most of the book and I think you really you know, kind of lay things out in a way that the business owner who's not an FP&A professional can relate to. So I think it's uh, well done. And David, I would put that out there that nobody expects the typical entrepreneur or business owner to be an FP&A guru. If you think about where entrepreneurs come from, and lots of them, not thinking about the people who dropped out of Harvard and had a tech idea and things like that, but like the real entrepreneurs mm -hmm. who run these small businesses, small, even mid-sized businesses, and you say, okay, where did that person come from? They probably came out of a bigger company where they figured out how to make, sell, or package a certain widget in a better way. Mm -hmm. And finance and accounting to them often was this black box in their organization that things went into and things came out of. Yep. It's just not part of that native skill set. And mm -hmm. so that's it. That is both the major opportunity and the challenge because these businesses have grown and been successful irrespective of that. And to us, that's what's most impressive because we breathe what we breathe. Right. But to muscle up product, a team, a business, and not have these things supporting you is impressive, but it has its limits. It's like having your finger on the pulse, but you only have 10 fingers on your hand. Right. Eight. No, getting technical. Sorry. No, I think that's. <laughs> I th no, Thumbs no, are I th fingers. Thumbs are fingers. They're important. That is true. So no, I think that's that's it. So the, the book is Relational Finance, and they can learn more about that at the First Water website, right, which is firstwateradvisors.com, and also learn more about it on LinkedIn. Do you are you generally open to people reaching out to you on LinkedIn? Absolutely. So that's Benjamin Lair, L-E-H-R-E-R, -E -E here in Houston of First Water. So if they type in Benjamin Lair, First Water, they can probably find you. Well, as we're rounding the home stretch, I have just a couple other questions. So one is I'm a bit of a car guy myself, kind of an auto enthusiast. And you being a, you know, an investment banker type, I'm just dying to know, are you a Mercedes S-Class guy, BMW 7 Series Range Rover, you know, what kind of fancy uh, European luxury car do you drive? Well, I know it sounds a little strange, perhaps, for somebody living in Houston, but I actually don't have a car. And second, no car yeah, in the household or just like no car for you? Well, my wife has a car and we have young kids, so it'd be very difficult to not have a car. But make no, make no mistake, it is her car. Okay. And I, I do not have a car. And so the other part of that statement is having young kids, I really don't like nice things. <laughs> so where do your prospects stay when you show up to a meeting after a 45 minute bike ride in your suit and you're kind of soaking wet in the summertime? How do you handle those, those type of meetings when you come sweaty off your bike? 
well, or do you have a different strategy? Or do you have a different right, strategy? Thankfully, you know, thankfully, there's all these venture capital-backed companies who don't care about making money who have these huge capital cannons behind me that keep sending me coupons to use their service like Uber <laughs> and Lyft. So it actually is quite the cost savings for me versus having a car full-time. And the time savings. Absolutely. It's, I tell it's, you what, it's, it's dangerous to email and drive. Sure. I tell you what, as soon as so I've got a, a Tesla... And as soon as we have uh, robo-taxis, I'm going to be all in on that. My biggest issue with Uber and Lyft rides, and again, I use them a lot, so no big complaint, but I kind of feel like I'm being rude if I just like show up, get in the car, and I carry on a phone conversation the whole time. I, I never say hi. I don't ask them you know, how their day's going. And so what happens is if I've got a 30-minute drive somewhere and I really want to be on a phone call the whole time. I'll be more likely to drive, you know, on my headset than to take an Uber because it just seems uh, kind of rude. How do you handle that? Have you gotten past that hang up or do you factor that into how you roll when the Uber pulls up? <laughs> well, I like to think I do the same thing there that I do in my relationships and my customers, which is ask questions. <laughs> and so if I am going to have a long rate, I'll just say, hey, you know, I have to plug in on something. Do you mind if I make a phone call? Is it okay if I do this? And for the most part, I think that Uber drivers have had enough negative experiences with people, with passengers being rude, mm -hmm. that they're often put off by somebody asking them if it's okay to do something in their private vehicle. So take that as you will. Yeah, you know, I mean, to be honest, that's exactly what I do when I do that. But it, but there is a certain, in some ways, I'd prefer it, it was, you know, the car was, you know, not driven by a human. So, okay, so that covers your luxury car ownership question. Okay, that was kind of disappointing. I, I was, you know, hoping for something, you know, a little more impressive. So, uh, rounding the home stretch here, if you could go back in time and give some advice to say your 22 year old self when you were coming out of Wharton or maybe your 25 year old self coming out of your first job, what advice might you give to yourself? Going, well, that's, I hate to think about how far back that actually is. However, I think that we have a tendency to form world and system views based on what we see right around us. Mm -hmm. And having spent the time that I have working in the ivory towers and also down in the villages, I think that I would tell myself as I think about the world and opportunities and in needs to not be insular in my perspective based on what I see just around me. That okay. There are alternatives outside of your own experience. I think that's that and, that and maybe when this thing comes out called Bitcoin, go buy that. <laughs> yeah, go ahead and you know, go ahead and throw a few thousand dollars at it, you know, when it's only a penny of Bitcoin. <laughs> and you know, just just see how it just throw some money at it and see how it works out. Gotcha. Okay. No, I think that's great advice um, really for anybody to not be so insular in your, in your perspective. Okay. So here comes a fun question. So we're both in Houston. 
you're more of a native Houstonian than I am. I'll, I'll give you that. I moved here after college. So just give me your gut level reaction, okay, when I ask this question. Don't think about it too much. Barbecue or Tex-Mex? Oh. Well, I make better barbecue than I do Tex-Mex. Okay. So, so barbecue is going to be the answer. If I care about answer. having friends, if I care about having friends, it's probably barbecue. Okay. One of the, I'll say one of the struggles for me in moving back to Houston was I'm not very good with portion control. Yeah. Me if, if you put it in front of me, like it's a challenge. <laughs> and, you know, that has kind of similar applications to aspects of barbecue and Tex-Mex, but I think that you can get about eight meals worth of food if you go out. For- so, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, the servings are rather generous. So is it, a, is it a taste question? Is it a longevity question? Is it a per-serving value question? But I will go with barbecue since I have a smoker in my backyard. Fair enough. Uh, good answer. So that about does it for my questions. Was there anything that I should have asked you, but I didn't, or you wish I had asked you, but I didn't? You know, I think one of the, one of the questions or series of questions that we get all the time is how we compare to other things. Okay. And it's easy for people to think about businesses and models within the context of those they already know. So Mm -hmm. we get questions like, oh, you sound like an outsourced CFO or you sound like an investment bank or you sound like a project consulting or BPO firm. And the answer to all of those questions is always yes, but no. And when when it really comes down to it, we work alongside all of those other groups. And so we aren't really in a position to displace or disrupt other offerings, but instead we're just positioned to be a better type of access for these small and mid-sized businesses. So if there was any question or series of questions that would dovetail nicely with this first water and relational finance discussion, it would be a discussion of specific comparisons and, and differences with all of those other models who we work alongside every day. So that might be a topic for a separate podcast, but it's, it's up when we talk about first water. No, I appreciate that, that clarification. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I actually have, I have an idea that I'll throw your way to maybe help with that the next time we get together. So with that, why don't we wrap up? So Ben, I really appreciate you making time to be on the podcast. This was really fun. I've I now have a better understanding of your business than I did before, so I appreciate that. And uh, I appreciate the uh, you gifting me a copy of of your book. I've really enjoyed that. That's been uh, really helpful in helping to even further understand the value you bring. So thanks again for being on the podcast. Well, I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. I'll tell you a joke. What's the difference between uh, relational finance and toilet. Paper. I don't know. Well, only one can be the definitive finance function companion, but both can be toilet paper. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Well, with that, why don't we wrap up 
And thanks again for being on the show and have a great afternoon, Ben. Awesome. Thank you. There we have it. Another great episode. Thanks for listening in. If you want to continue the conversation, go to icdiscshow.com. That's ic-d-i-s-c-s-h-o-w.com. And we have additional information on the podcast, archived episodes, as well as a button to be a guest. So if you'd like to be a guest, go select that and fill out the information. And we'd love to have you on the show. So that's it. We'll be back next time with another episode of the IC Disc Show.